0: Hello and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. I'm Penny Lewis, a neuroscientist specializing in sleep and memory and the presenter of this show. In the podcast, we talk about all things related to sleep, from dreaming and sleepwalking to what sleep does to our brain and our body and how we can get more out of our sleep. Please see the Sleep Science webpage for details. Today's guest is Bjorn Rash a professor at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Some years ago now, Bjorn developed a novel technique for manipulating memories during sleep. And this is now commonly known as targeted memory reactivation. In this episode, Bjorn and I will talk about targeted memory reactivation and how exposing people to simple sounds or smells that were paired with learned material during wake can help to further consolidate memories by triggering reactivation during subsequent sleep. We'll also talk about how to interfere with this type of triggered reactivation and the pros and cons of using such techniques at home. Our conversation will then move on to cover some of Bjorn's more recent work, including work on how sleep can help to improve the success of therapy sessions and can even help to overcome fears like arachnophobia. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. Thank you. I should start anyway by saying that Bjorn Rash is a, a really central figure in the study of sleep and memory. You developed the technique of targeted memory reactivation, which is a method for triggering memory re- reactivation on demand during sleep, which influences consolidation. Uh, But since then, you've moved on to do lots of other interesting things with sleep, some of them related to memory, and some of them more broadly related to sleep. And I hope we're going to have time to talk about, you know, a a range of these things. Uh, So thank you so much for for being here.
1: Perfect. Looking forward to it.
0: So maybe I, I mean, I know, or I suspect Bjorn that you have talked so much about targeted memory reactivation already in your life that you are completely bored with this topic, <laughs> but I still have to ask you, could you tell us a bit about the the seminal work that you did on that
1: sure so yeah. When actually, this was really my my one of the first studies I did uh, when I started my PhD. Basically, so it's and it has been a central study <laughs> since then in my academic life. That's true. And so, what we started up with is that it was known at that time that reactivation existed somehow during sleep, and we wanted to know: Do they do anything? So, do they? Are they functional? Do they have a role or are they just there? So that means it could also be that you just, so these rats where you find the reactivations, that they basically run around in their maze. And because they ran so many times in their maze, all this activation, the hippocampus, is still there when they sleep. So it's just not related to any memory processes or any, has no functional significance basically for memory. And that's why we thought, okay, somehow we need to manipulate this activity and then to test whether this manipulation leads to some memory differences. And that's how we came up with this idea that somehow we need to, yeah, increase the amount of reactivation during sleep. And then we thought, okay, how can we do this? How can you somehow increase memory reactivation during sleep? And and then this... idea of using odors or scent to increase memory because we knew memory and scent are closely related. And we know that when you smell something that you're familiar with, that you that, that reminds you of something that is associated with the scent. And the advantage is that scent doesn't disturb your sleep. It's really incredible what you can present during sleep without waking up a subject, so it can smell very bad and they don't run away, which they would do during waking when they smell this. So it doesn't really disturb, at least when you use the right smells. And that's how the study was designed. So people learned something while they smelled a the rose odor, and then we presented this rose odor during slow waking. And this, the idea was that this odor will reactivate the learning material that was previously paired with the rose order. That if it's functional should lead to some memory increases and that's what it did. So it actually increased memory retrieval after sleep. And with some additional controls groups, we could then conclude that yes, if we reactivate memories during sleep that has consequences for retrieval performance, which for us at that time meant yes, reactivations during sleep have a function for memory.
0: Probably worth adding that the task here was I would call it memory some people call it suitcase where you have cards playing cards and they are flipped upside down in an array and you have to flip one over and then remember where the pair is so if you other one and it's it's the pair then then you take those two out and you get a point i guess and if it's not the pair then you you put them back and you have another go later. So you gradually build up a memory for where the cards are in this array, and you, your performance will depend on how well you remember, basically. And so this is what you tested people on before sleep while they were smelling the rose odor, and then again after sleep in which you had either presented the rose odor. I believe you presented it either in, in REM or in slow wave sleep or else you presented it in wake before sleep. Is that right?
1: Exactly. So we had this different conditions or different groups of people. We presented it in slow-wave sleep, we presented it in REM sleep, and we presented it also in wakefulness after learning. And only when we presented it in slow-wave sleep, people could really remember more of these card pair locations after sleep.
0: Yeah, which was a hugely exciting and novel result at the time because really we hadn't seen anything like this before. I mean, as you said, we we were sort of aware that some kind of memory reactivation was happening during sleep. People had hypothesized that this might be important for memory consolidation. We knew that memories did consolidate across sleep, but we had really no idea that we could intentionally bias and control and harness that reactivation in order to selectively strengthen the memories that we we're interested in. So, so I mean, it had a huge impact. And I think, I mean, it's also worth maybe describing the work that you did with MRI to back it up, to support the idea that you were, in fact, triggering a reactivation.
1: So we, we did another study in this paper also to to say okay now we see some effects on memory so we can actually increase memory when the people smell the odor during sleep but does it somehow impact the brain and that's why we repeated the study in the fmri scanner people learned the same card pair location task or, or memory task in germany it all, would also be it's just the memory game basically that everybody would know how that is uh, what that is and So they actually played it, smelled the odor at the same time, and then they lay down in the fMRI scanner, they were allowed to sleep, and some people actually fall asleep, actually most of the people fell asleep, and then we presented the rose odor again during sleep in the fMRI scanner. And when we compared when or times when we presented this odor as compared to times when we did not, we really found... uh, out that the hippocampus or activity in the hippocampus increased with this odor presentation but only when this odor was actually related to the memory game so when the odor was not previously presented to the memory then it was not such a strong hippocampal activation
0: and, and this that, was non-rem sleep
1: and that was also non-rem sleep it, it's actually very difficult to to get rem sleep in this scanner that was also kind of lucky for for that part because they only slept like 90 minutes in the fMRI and then usually no, not much REM sleep occurs.
0: So, I mean, such interesting findings really and and it has had a big impact in that I would say the majority of labs studying sleep and memory around the world are now using this kind of paradigm in some variants. I mean, a lot of people are using sounds now instead of odors to trigger the replay, but it's the same idea. Now, I know that you, you did a lot of follow-up studies with this targeted memory reactivation. I'm not going to ask you to talk about all of them, but maybe you could briefly tell us about the one that you did on interference. So using the same memory task and looking at, you know, how does the reactivation relate to interference that might happen and strengthening the memory against interference?
1: hmm uh, so we basically repeated the study using, again, smell, this card pair location game. And the here the idea was, okay, how does this reactivation actually increase memory during sleep? And we know that at least during waking, reactivation also plays an important role for memory, especially when you think of quite basic learning paradigms. Uh, like conditioning. So that's this classical bell that the dog hears and then it knows that there will be some food. So the saliva starts to produce. So this basic learning paradigms, these basic learning paradigms, sometimes also a, a memory cue or a reminder is presented. And when that happens, usually the memory becomes destabilized. So basically, this is the whole idea of that, that consolidation or so stabilization of memories, or maybe one step back. So, how does memory actually get stabilized? So, the idea is in the initial phase when we encode, encode a memory, it's initially fragile and it still needs to be consolidated in the brain. And before the, the original standard hypothesis that, okay, it gets stabilized and then after a while it's stable. But nowadays, we know that's not true. Basically, there are different phases of consolidation. So, you, you learn a memory, you learn something new, then it's fragile, it gets consolidated, you would retrieve it, or you reactivate it, and then it gets destabilized again, and it needs another round of consolidation, which is now called reconsolidation. And then you have kind of different rounds over the lifetime of a memory. So we thought maybe that's actually the same mechanism in sleep. So basically what we do is we kind of reactivate or or offline retrieve the memory during sleep. It gets actually shortly or temporarily destabilized. And because there's no interference during sleep, this new round of reconsolidation enhances again the stability of this memory. And that leads to the better retrieval after sleep. So maybe during sleep, you have kind of internal rounds of reconsultation and reactivation. So that was the idea of the study. And so then we thought, okay, if that is true, then if we reactivate some some memories in sleep and we immediately wake people up afterwards, then they should actually have a lot of interference because they wake up. And then actually this reactivation should lead to a decrement, so so, so impairment of memory. And that's how we designed the study. So we they learned again these these locations, they smelled the rose scent, they slept, they came into slow-wave sleep, we presented the, the smell, and then we all woke them up. And then we additionally let them learn other tasks or basically another version of the memory game so that this interference is really strong. So they really have to hold up this original memory. And we thought this might then lead to impairments, but actually it did not. It actually, again, increased or further increased the memory in spite of the interference we put after waking people up. So that for us meant, okay, we were basically wrong with this hypothesis. So it does not seem, or at least how we tested it, there was no support that this reactivation during sleep leads to a temporal rarely destabilization of memory. It, it seems that it's immediately or, or, or at least in a range of minutes, it, it, it's stabilizing memory further. And that was actually also for us very important finding because it, it seems that there's this different process going on during sleep uh, that leads to the stabilization or maybe even integration of, of memories by this process of reactivation.
0: Yeah, so it, it didn't make it labile in such a way that the interference would be worse. Instead, it stabilized it such that the interference had less of an impact, right? Yeah, so exactly. And and possibly this is because the reactivation was happening in sleep, you know, the state of sleep itself. And if you had done that in wake, it might have made it more labile, I guess.
1: Exactly. That, that, and there are studies like this that, that actually it, when you do it during wake, you can make it more labile and more susceptible to future interference.
0: Can you speculate about what it is in sleep? I mean, why is it that the reactivation in sleep has this kind of stabilizing influence?
1: I, I think the, the, the general idea that, that there's a, a different environment or state than during waking for me is still quite appealing. So, so that actually, for me, I, although this, uh, or in spite of this result, I have to say that I, I still like this idea that the general process of reactivation, so just a memory being reactivated, that this process is still probably the same during waking and sleep. Because I, for me, the memory is, 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 I mean, I imagine that this kind of, or a lot of people imagine that it's kind of an associative network. And if you trigger something, you will reactivate some nodes, some concepts in this network. And I think that's what we do with targeted memory reactivation. We, we give a cue and that just reactivates some concepts or, or whatever, that is related to the cue, and I think that happens also during waking. But then the the consequence of a memory being reactivated is very different. So again, I think there are hypotheses that the general like the general dialogue between different brain areas is different during, especially slow wave sleep. Maybe more, or uh, also the direction of information flow is easier from hippocampal areas to neocortical areas in in the sleep state, and and so that also together with other mechanisms, um, that these uh, reactivation has different consequences like stabilizing or integrating new memories in long-term stores, basically, which is probably not the case or not immediately the case when you do that during waking because you have so many other information activated also coming from the outside worlds that are processed at the same time, which probably leads to a complete different consequence when you reactivate a memory because you kind of test this reactivated memory against the environment, right? So so it, it's reactivated and you kind of um, want to know whether it's still adaptive or not, which is a very important process to, to, to also change your memory during waking. You do, just don't want to reactivate something and then just immediately stabilize it during waking. That's not your goal. You want to see whether it's adaptive and then you can re-encode it but if it's not adaptive and doesn't fit to your current needs or the current environment, it's changed. And I think that, for me still, this is the process that is that is missing, basically, in, in sleep, uh, which kind of leads to the immediate integration or stabilization.
0: So, I mean, this may be a bit tangential, but I can't resist. So I, I was just discussing yesterday with a couple of my uh, students about this, you know, the fact that sleep seems to do both kind of pattern separation and generalization at the same time. And it's almost as though you need to separate, you need to pattern separate individual memories in order to know how to generalize. And then the generalization process probably does involve pruning. So it involves getting rid of some of the noise, getting rid of some of the things that you don't want that are not important. But before you can know which things to get rid of, you, you have to have a strong representation of all the things to begin with. And so I think it's a really interesting question that hasn't really been explored too much yet about how are both processes happening and, and how how do they coexist within mm. sleep.
1: Yeah, I think that comes to the, the general question I think that, that you also and also others have already looked at. So is it is this process during sleep is that somehow, let's say intelligent or is it, so is it somehow actively Doing something that is important and leaving other things out that are not important, uh, or is it kind of general process that that just happens because the the basically the conditions are good, <laughs> so the the selection processes what is important and what's not important are basically done during wakefulness. I think, and and that that comes to this this point. So is it is it just separating or or or, in, or also generalizing? Everything that that is that is that came into the system or or is it somehow preferentially or selectively strengthening some things and yeah maybe even weakening other things that are that are not important or, or considered uh, inconsistent or something like that
0: yeah, and so I mean I think this kind of discussion brings us to the question of you know sleep physiology and what's actually happening in sleep and the oscillations that occur in the different sleep stages. So I know you have a whole line of work, particularly with Thomas Schreiner, for instance, where you've looked at how auditory targeted memory reactivation seems to elicit oscillations in different frequencies, how how those might interrelate to each other, so coupling across spindles and low oscillations and possibly theta as well and how that all interacts with the memory replay. So shall we try and bring some of that in for the discussion a little bit? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you could start by telling us about some of those studies, and then we can think about what they mean and why they're important.
1: Mm-hmm. So basically what we, what we saw already with, with scent, interestingly, I, I think we started to look at it, at the oscillation part also with the, with the odor or scent. In general, I, uh, what, what we can say is, of course, that we know that oscillatory uh, patterns like slow oscillations and sleep spindles, uh, that they are somehow involved or important for memory processes occurring during sleep. And so there are general correlations and there are general also manipulations of uh, of these oscillations that show us they are related to this process. And we wanted to know, is there anything related also to reactivations Actually, even to be more specific, if you increase the amount of reactivation, does that also lead to an increase in this memory-related sleep oscillations? And we we saw actually something. And with with odors, this was it's quite difficult because they are so non-precise. You never know when actually the odor really reaches the brain unless you have really complicated technology. But still, we saw some signs that slow oscillations or at least there, some parts of it are are actually increased when we increase reactivations. But also some uh, aspects of spindle oscillations seem to increase when we present these odor cues. So these odors related to memories. But as this was so temporal, so from the timing was so so non-precise, we decided, okay, now we, we should use another stimulus and also inspired also by the work by, by Ken Pala, we thought, okay, that seems to work as well. And so we did these uh, vocabulary learning studies where people had to learn 120 Dutch-German vocabulary pairs. And I'm always asked, why did you use Dutch? <laughs> Actually, the, the reason is, is also because of this aim to, to see the neural correlates of this process because what we wanted is that we have a lot of stimuli so that we have a lot of word pairs so that we have during sleep a lot of trials that we can analyze. And why then Dutch? Because Dutch is very close to German so it's it's not so difficult to learn these Dutch words because if you learn Chinese, I mean, if, if they can, if they don't know Chinese, it's, they hardly can learn 10 pairs because it's so difficult to learn these new pairs and then you just don't have any trials trials to analyze during sleep. So that's why, why we chose Dutch. And it was true. So they learned in like two or three rounds, they learned roughly 60 of these 120 word pairs. and That was exactly what we wanted. And, and so, so the second advantage of these pairs was that we have a direct comparison between activated words that were later remembered. So what we do during sleep is we basically present the Dutch word. We don't present the German translation, just the Dutch word. And then we test after sleep when we present again the Dutch word and they have to recall the Dutch, uh, the German translation. And the good thing is that we then have during sleep the, the situation that we can present Dutch words that are later remembered. So they know the German translations and we can compare these with Dutch words that are presented during sleep, but they are not remembered. So basically we have two situations that are very similar. Both times a Dutch word is presented during sleep, but one time it's somehow reactivating something or at least leading to a memory increase. And sometimes it's not.
0: Can, can I just ask yes? just to clarify? So mm-hmm. these are Dutch participants?
1: No, they're German speaking participants.
0: Okay. So they're German speaking participants. They're, they, they obviously, they know the German words. They're learning the Dutch words and analogous to those words, yes. But then you are presenting the Dutch in sleep, so you're presenting yes. the word that they have learned in sleep, and yes, yes. and so that's reinstating that the memory of that that word. And, and so probably, it's probably a, the pair,
1: exactly. So yes. so it's a real classical. So it's like you would la- want to learn a foreign language. But that's a good point. We present the unknown word during sleep that they just have or have not associated with something they know. And then for some of these words, that leads to an, an, an associative memory and they know the translation and for some it does not. And when we then compare the oscillatory activity related to the word, the Dutch word that is later correctly remembered, as compared to the Dutch word that is later not correctly remembered. Again, the good thing is the situation is very similar. So the general responses to words during sleep, they are basically controlled. But still, we see a nice increase in spindle activity related to the success in reactivation, or how I would call it. And, and that was for us very interesting. We saw an increase in theta activity related to the successful reactivation. And that for us was was very interesting because theta activity is in general related to successful retrieval, also successful encoding sometimes. So in general, it is a a neural signature, basically, of some uh, successful encoded or successfully stored and retrieved memory. And that seems to, this signature seems to also show up when we do a successful memory reactivation during sleep, which we interpret interpret in a way that this theta increase could be an indicator of successful reactivation. So if if this cue that you present during sleep is associated to a memory and can or does reactivate something, then we should expect some theta activation. And that's also what we see in several studies.
0: And you said you see both the theta and the spindles.
1: Exactly. And then the, the theta activation in itself does not really mean that, that there's a stabilization going on. And that comes back to what I said earlier. So, so basically, a cue can basically reactivate something, and it does not necessarily mean that it, that it leads, to, leads to a better memory later. And the idea would be only if it's followed by some spindle processes or maybe spindle associated with ripples and other processes that we could not really capture because we had only human EEG, that they are basically necessary to then also stabilize and consolidate these memories during sleep. So that is is basically our working model.
0: So these days, people are very interested in the coupling between spindles and slow oscillations. But back at the time that you did that work, I think people hadn't really started to think about it too much. So my memory is you didn't look at coupling but i wonder oh. if you have thoughts about what if you did look what would you expect
1: ah uh, that's a good question so so in my mind we basically somehow induce coupling in a in a sense that that's when you present something during sleep a tone or some auditory stimulus you basically induce a lot of times some slow oscillation or k complex or how you want to call it and then if it's followed by a spindle in my mind, it would actually lead to a numerical increase in coupling, basically. <laughs> so, I, I actually suspect that you know, the process is, is, is probably similar, but in, in our study, we kind of induced it uh, by presenting the word, and, and what people are now looking at is, is kind of the spontaneous situation, so that you have a spontaneous slow wave or K-complex, and then you have a spontaneous spindle, and how this is related. But it, it's it's... A really good point because because that's we haven't done this study but this was would always be an interesting study to to see what what happens if you kind of combine closed loop so just inducing a slow oscillation by a click for example and then presenting the words right after the click in the right timing so it, that basically gets another slow oscillation. Uh, so, replacing basically the second click of the of the NIMGO technique by some content, uh, so kind of combining effects of precisely inducing slow waves and reactivating content. And that would be interesting because that would then, you could, would get closer to this idea when exactly you should reactivate something uh, during sleep, basically, which, which could get closer to this idea that maybe coupling and, and precise timing of different aspects uh, is important for the process.
0: So, I, I think that would be a really interesting experiment. I think just for listeners, we should probably give a yeah, little sorry, more yeah. detail. <laughs> Fine. But um, so, what Bjorn is referring to is a technique called closed loop auditory stimulation, where just click sounds can be used in sleep to elicit large slow oscillations. And because the the spindles that are associated with memory consolidation tend to be coupled to the up phases of those oscillations, if you induce slow oscillations, you tend to induce these spindles as well. So what Bjorn is actually suggesting is to combine that closed-loop auditory stimulation technique by eliciting slow oscillations with the targeted memory reactivation so that you can maybe elicit a slow oscillation and then trigger memory reactivation at the appropriate time so that it should be coupled appropriately. And, and hopefully you would see the spindles relating to that as well. I, I think... It would be very cool. I also think it's probably technically quite hard to get it just right.
1: <laughs> also a lot of people have tried to to just present the words, so without combining it with clicks, just presenting it either in the in the in the positive wave of a slow oscillation or the negative wave of the slow oscillation. I think that that is already also very interesting or that gave us already very interesting results suggesting that maybe more positive wave of the slow oscillation is probably a better time to present these content during sleep. And again, it's, it's the same idea that, that then it reaches basically a time when, when actually spontaneously a spindle already occurs or a general, the, the brain is in the the more activated state, the so-called up state, And that is pro- probably a, a time where also we would assume that also spontaneously reactivation occurs. So I think that, that also gives us some hints that that this coupling is also this precise timing is is plays probably an important role
0: yeah so i think there are a few studies out either out or just coming out now which are showing in process of coming out which are showing that if you if you present the tmr in the upgoing phase of the slow oscillation then you're more likely to get a, a benefit from it. So so let me ask you something related but slightly different. So years ago at a conference, I remember discussing this with you and we were we were talking about this question of suppose you present your targeted memory reactivation and it maybe it brings an engram kind of to salient so that it's it's ready to get replayed. You have some information, but it but it, it doesn't necessarily actually replay straight away. Perhaps it what I remember you suggesting at that time was mm-hmm. perhaps it kind of it's ready and it now it has to sit and wait until the appropriate circumstance comes for it mm-hmm. to actually reactivate. And that circumstance might be a spindle that is coupled to a slow oscillation in the right phase, but it might not occur for a second or so after when the TMR occurred. Is that mm-hmm. still how you think about it?
1: I think, yes, because, and, and, and it's basically based on, on, on this, pa- uh, this paper on the, uh, from, the, from the Wilson lab, basically, where, where they presented the, the cues and then really measured the reactivation in the hippocampus. And they actually saw that it doesn't stop right after the cue it just goes on so basically and that is also a very interesting process of course because it's it's true why should it stop actually <laughs> uh, it, it's you basically queue the memory you present a queue and then there's the pro- process is Basically turned on, you could think, and then it just goes on, and so then, as you say, it can wait for the appropriate time to be used in this um, sleep consolidation process. And that's also a little bit why we thought it could also take some time for this processes to be completed during sleep and to really lead to some advantages on, on memory. And that's why when we did this study also together with Thomas, where we presented basically a second word shortly after the first cue, because I think there, it comes back to this discussion, why do we only present the Dutch word during sleep and not also just the thing that you should learn or associate with it? so the German translation. So shouldn't that be even a better or be a better memory reminder during sleep and lead to even better results? But interestingly, at least in our studies, it did not. So if we present the Dutch word and the German translation during sleep, it did not really further increase the the memories. And we tried around with this because we didn't really understand how how that worked. And we found out if we present something shortly or so, some milliseconds after the, the, the memory cue, it messes up the whole advantage of targeted memory reactivation. And that only if we present it like one and a half second later, then it, at least it did not impair the TMR advantage. So somehow it needs some time to complete, and maybe it, it even stays on longer if, if, you don't, if you don't disturb the system. That we cannot say from our data. That is more what, what the red data suggests.
0: Yeah, so Dan Bender's rodent data does suggest that the the the, the cued memory kind of continues to reinstate yeah. until something else is cued. So whether yeah. that is also true in humans, it's you know
1: we don't know, but but it it could be basically.
0: So with respect to that study with Thomas that you mentioned, where you you play another sound soon after the cue and it disrupts things. I'm just curious, just speculating, imagine if you did have a spindle within that short interval. Do you think Mm. that, I mean, I wonder if that's something that, I don't know if it's even possible to look at it in those data, but if the way we are thinking about the system is correct, then we might think of it as if you had a spindle in that short time before the next sound comes, then you would get consolidation and replay. But if you Mm. don't, and actually, it's it's very unlikely that you would have it within such a short interval. Yeah, yeah. Then you just lose out, and the whole the whole queuing is wasted for this particular trial.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting idea. I, I think for, for we presented it probably so short that it's unlikely, basically, that you could even call it a spindle. But I think also this this work from. Anthony yeah. so so basically where, where they played around with the timing and the spindles of the t- target memory creation i think that is very also very elegant so that there's there's maybe some kind of so they suggest that there's this kind of refractory period where where basically you you so for the spindles in general they occur in, in some uh, time periods uh, and they are more likely or less likely to occur and so you basically based on this spindle timing, you basically have optimal windows for TMR to reactivate and and increase memory. So I think think this is a very interesting idea.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is the kind of work, you know, playing with these intervals, playing with the coupling with slow oscillation phase, and possibly playing with things like combining targeted memory reactivation with closed-loop auditory stimulation that we need to do in order to to understand the system so it's exciting i mean there's lots of work to do there
1: lots of work absolutely and and it's but it's also a little bit as you say there are now so many parameters to really find the optimal optimal way
0: yeah let me ask you a slightly off-piece question about Mm -hmm. this so i discussed targeted memory reactivation with bob stickgold on an Mm -hmm. earlier episode of the podcast and I mean, while obviously he, he finds it interesting in lots of ways, his overall kind of assessment was that he, he thinks it's a maladaptive process and mm-hmm. he wouldn't recommend it as a kind of a daily kind of thing that people should do at home because he would worry about the negative side effects and what it's doing to other memories. What do you think about this?
1: I, I think this is, this is a relevant concern, and, and I think we, we have to also see where, where this field came from. And it really came from understanding a theoretical question, and I think that is also what most studies want to do. And I think for this aim, it's, it's a very good tool. It's, it's a very good experimental tool to find out something about memory processes in the sleep state. Whether it's really good for everyday use, I also have my concerns. Um, Because first, so far at least, I don't see the very big memory advantages in real life. So we tried to adapt our vocabulary learning task to, to home environments. Maybe we kind of oversimplified a little bit. So, but basically people just listen to words during sleep, using an iPod. (laughs) So without any control for sleep dates and without any control for waking up by the words. So, So it was very simple, I have to admit. But still, we had kind of a big group. It was 60 people or more than 60 people, and they listened to these words three nights in a row. So we should expect some benefits. And we saw some benefits, but, but they were not very big I would say. We thought that because usually in a lab you do it for one night and we always argue if we would do it like more days and nights uh, that would really increase the advantage but but somehow it did not. It, it really did not result in much more word pairs learned by the participants and and that for me was a little bit worrying because if it does not really increase memory to a, to a, to a relevant amount and at least in that one study it, it, it really did not and and so so far based on that result i also would not recommend it using it on everyday basis I, for me it's i would also say rather use the normal sleep i mean that for sure does something good to your memory and 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 maybe wait with the with the everyday Word present or every night word presentation during sleep until we know a little bit better when exactly and and how exactly because I I think we need some devices that kind of control the volume of the words based on your brain signals basically so so that kind of if we wake up. Uh, that the presentation is stopped and or or the volume is toned down so so basically that you you are not so much disturbed uh, and I think that these kind of devices are are really needed uh, to to really reduce the possible harm effects of these techniques.
0: I think those are all really interesting points. I mean, maybe of relevance to the last one. One thing we've been playing with in my lab at the moment is looking at which properties of the oscillations leading up to stimulation, so the phase and the amplitude and other properties would predict whether the stimulation actually elicits a reactivation or mm-hmm. not. And I, I mean, we haven't looked at which properties would predict whether it elicits an arousal, mm-hmm. but we could do this, actually. And so I think with that kind of online prediction, you, you could build a device that would only deliver the stimulation at the optimal time yeah. for knowing that you are likely to have a benefit and you're unlikely to cause a disruption. So
1: Absolutely, and, and, and also stop it when, when, when the prediction is basically negative and I think that that would really that's a very interesting point I think you should look at this because that that is that is actually very important information because also in our data we see some hint that if people are not disturbed by the words then we see some benefits of the target memory reactivation technique and I think this aspect is very important
0: Yeah, so maybe for taking it into the home, we need to work on this kind of thing. Let's move on away from targeted memory reactivation now because I want to make sure we have time to talk about some of your other work. I have to ask you about one of your older studies, just Mm -hmm. briefly, just because it's so much fun. So you had this study about uh, arachnophobia and people, Mm -hmm. so people who were afraid of spiders, and I think they had some therapy to help them deal with that and then they either slept or they didn't sleep and you looked at the results of this can you just briefly talk about that
1: yeah so basically what what people did there is they so they were invited and they were um, only invited if they had arachnophobia of they had really fear of spiders and they wanted to uh, have a therapy session on that. So it was uh, a real standardized therapy. And that time we had a a therapy with uh, virtual spiders. So they basically had a therapy, an exposure therapy with a headset on. So they, they did not see real spiders. They had they just walked in rooms uh, with this virtual environment. And then there were small spiders very far from them. And, and over the course of the therapy, they, they went closer and the spiders were bigger, basically. Uh, so this is a this is standardized therapy approach. And it's very effective, basically. You're, so you need two, two, three sessions of one or one hour and a half. And, and people really get better. Uh, uh, with this. So it's, it's, it's incredibly effective. Um, and we thought, okay, maybe we can even increase the effectiveness if we say, okay, what do they actually do in this exposure sessions? They, they learn something new. They learn that spiders are less fearful than they previously thought. So, so this is a very non-clinical perspective on 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 this uh, procedure, but from a memory perspective, that's what probably happens. They 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 form new memories, and as we know that sleep helps to form memories and stabilise and consolidates memories, we thought, okay, maybe it's a very simple intervention that can boost the effectiveness of this technique if they just go to sleep after this exposure therapies. Then we. Basically, ask practitioners whether they think it would work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, it was funny because people told us, no, it will never work because they are so aroused afterwards. They can never sleep. Uh, and others told us, oh, yes, uh, I always tell them that they should go to sleep. They are so exhausted. So it was funny. It was kind of different myth around what will happen after this exposure therapy so we thought okay um we just do an experiment and people did this exposure therapy and some of them were allowed to nap for 90 minutes afterwards in the sleep lab and and some of them had to stay awake and watch a movie so they were also in the sleep lab uh, and then after a week they came back to the second therapy session and there's a very standardized test so they are presented with a spider they have to rate. Um, how how fearful they think the spider is. And there's this one test where they have to approach the spider and they can decide whether they want to stand one meter away or two or three. And, and that's a very good behavioral measure, how, how, how high their fear is. And usually after these exposure therapy sessions, it goes down. And the interesting thing, after a week, the people had really much less fear of this spider when they slept after the exposure therapy. So in general, the exposure therapy is effective, but sleeping afterwards basically stabilizes your success. So it it basically, you have formed this new memory that spiders are less fearful, and this uh, reduction of fear is then further decreased if you sleep uh, after this exposure therapy. The second result was they can sleep very well after this procedure. So we, we did not have any problem that somebody could not sleep afterwards. We had more problems with the wake group because some of them were just falling asleep during this movie. So I think from that perspective, it's, it's really clear that just sleeping afterwards in general is a good idea, and it can also reduce your fears further.
0: Which, I mean, is not surprising from the perspective of the sleep and no. memory field, right? No. But has it been picked up by clinicians? Or are they now telling people to to sleep after these sessions?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I have to. I, I'm not as I'm not in so much in the clinical field. I don't know. I think the from the citations and uh, I think the the work in general was very well conceived. I think that's that's for sure. Um, I think the the point is. And we, we also encountered this problem we have, we, because we did another study or we, we basically tried to replicate our own findings. And that time we used real spiders. We also had a TMR condition. So we, we basically presented a, an odor at the end of the spider exposure se- session and then reactivated it during the following nap. So we thought, okay, maybe we can even further increase the success of this therapy with reactivation. But in in that uh, study, we actually could not really replicate the, the beneficial effect of the nap and also not of the TMR for this session. And, I mean, maybe we just couldn't replicate, but maybe I think what we saw at least is that the reduction in fear after this real spider session was so was much bigger than after the virtual spider session so it could be that that using real spiders in exposure therapy is 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 so effective that that basically there's not much room for improvement or at least not how we did it to further increase the su- success so probably we were a little bit lucky to use a virtual exposure session in the first study uh, and and that could be also the reason why maybe people are are more now using probably real spider sessions and they don't really care because it's so effective to, to cure this spider fear.
0: Ah, I see. But nevertheless, I think um, it still might have implications for other kinds of therapy.
1: I would really encourage people to, to do that because the, the from the memory and sleep perspective, it, it should actually apply to, to almost all therapy and coaching sessions you can think of because in the core of a successful therapy session is that you, in very general terms, you you learn something new and and sleep afterwards should help you consolidate aspects of it. We apply the same idea to this trauma film paradigms. It's it's a little bit different because it's not a, a therapy session, but in, in this idea, sleep itself basically is is a little therapy. So in, in these experiments, people watch a traumatic movie. They are all, they are all healthy, so it's not it's not traumatized patients who watch a, a movie that is very emotionally negative. And but they are commercially available movies. And, and it's interesting because these movies, they, they kind of induce something that also patients with post-traumatic stress disorders show, uh, and that is these so-called um, intrusive memories. And intrusive memories are memories that basically come spontaneously into your mind. Uh, you just don't want them. And that is what patients with post-traumatic stress disorder report, that that when they have reminder cues from the traumatic situation, it can just They can just really go back in the traumatic situation and have these intrusive memories. They they also have the feeling they cannot control them. And we kind of tested whether sleeping after watching such a movie is actually bad or good for these intrusive memories. Because based on sleep and memory research, you could make both hypotheses. You could say, okay, sleep strengthens your memories and intrusive memories are memories so sleeping after these movies is bad because it it will increase the amount of intrusive memory but it does not i mean there are now so many so there are like multiple studies not only from our lab but also from others showing that sleeping after such a movie or even after traumatic events so there are some recent studies now with with um, accident with car accident survivors and how they sleep after these accidents and then people are usually measured for the next seven or, or more days and they have to report their intrusive memories and and we repeatedly can show that the intrusive memories are reduced and that's actually an interesting phenomenon and and i think the explanation is that that these memories are somehow consolidated in a right way so that they, they are kind of integrated in our long-term memory systems they are controllable they, they have their place and what usually is done with all our memories, but these traumatic memories are probably consolidated in a wrong way, and that's how they get their intrusive properties. And sleep probably helps you to, to consolidate them in a better way.
0: And did you find correlations with RAM or any other phase of sleep? Anything specific about sleep?
1: That's that's a good question. Uh, hopefully, I don't mix it up. We we usually have some co- correlations with uh, N1 sleep. So so the more N1 sleeps you have, the more intrusive memories you have, which might be an indicator of more shallow sleep and and basically less consolidating processes. We have some hints for. I mean, of course, the other way around. Then then also gets a little bit in the same direction. So if you have more N2 and, 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 uh, uh, and deep sleep, you have less uh, of these memories. With REM sleep, um, yeah, you always ask me that. I I don't have it, I I don't know it so well usually. (laughs) So the
0: reason I ask that just for anyone listening is because there are various ideas around about how REM sleep might be important for reducing emotional responses to learned information. And so I would say there are ideas, there are hypotheses, but there is not really a lot of evidence and mm. so I am always looking out for new yeah. pieces of evidence yeah, sure. that that yeah. might exist. But it sounds like yeah. this is—I think—if you had a strong REM correlation, you would remember it. So
1: yeah, yeah, no, it was definitely not strong. I mean, it it was also not strong with slow wave sleep. But but this is also always the the problem with with naps. Um, so so we had correlations with spindles and with stage two sleep, and uh, so that more spindles and more stage two is less intrusive memories and. More and one means more, so so a little bit like saying a, a deeper nap is beneficial, and and a more fragmented nap is is uh, less beneficial. Uh
0: huh. So it's a non-REM kind of phenomena. It sounds like, yeah.
1: But again, it, it's not a whole night. That, that's why I, I'm I don't want to argue that it has nothing to do with REM because there's not much REM in the naps usually.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I, I think um, all this kind of work is really valuable. I mean, I think it's really great that you, as much as, as much as I love the targeted memory reactivation work and I'm fascinated by the system and trying to understand what is happening to memories, I also think it's really important that we look at applications and we think about what sleep can actually be used for more oh. pragmatically, how we can manipulate our sleeping yeah. So, well, I think, honestly, Bjorn, I could keep asking you questions, and we could talk for hours, and I I find it all so fascinating and so exciting, but I'd like to ask you just one final thing, which is, Really, what should I have asked you? I mean, what do you see as the most exciting thing, new thing that is happening right now?
1: I'm, of course, very much biased because I, I think my work is interesting, <laughs> but probably everybody does that in a way. I think it's great. I mean... <laughs> for, for me, I think the thing what I would like to do in the next years. Uh, so for me, I, I really would like to start describing the cognitive processes that are still active during sleep in a more conceptual way. So so really to take things that we know already that they are influenced sleep, like like these worries or or these goals and and things like that, and and try to to come up with some more, maybe more psychological models to, to explain them. Maybe to also have probably some hints from from neurophysiology what what processes uh, can, could underlie them but but first to start with a more proper psychological conceptualization of these processes so so to come up with a so i what i'm thinking of is more like i don't know if you are familiar with these appraisal theories of, of how emotions occur so so it's basically these are theories um that are explaining how different emotions are elicited, basically. And they have like different, they propose different so-called appraisal steps where you, for example, say, okay, is this situation relevant for me? Uh, can I cope with it or not? It's also related to stress models and things like that. So, And they're quite widely used in the in emotional psychology literature. And they basically explain why are these appraisal steps how you then come up with an emotion, and and I think kind of similar ideas apply to sleep. So I think we have kind of different evaluation steps before we go to sleep. So for example, is this a good environment to sleep? Is is have I done my work? Are there still things that I need to do? Do I have tasks to do? Um, so like kind of very basic, probably very old processes also. So is this a safe environment? Is there a tiger running around, basically? So so very adaptive processes that are automatically triggered, also when you sleep in a new environment, for example. So this is, I don't know, I haven't survived my sleep here, so so I have to sleep less deep. So so this, these kind of things that are, that is hard for us to control, and that they actually have a big impact on, on how we sleep. And that probably... Explains also why we have these these uh, sleep disturbances in some occasions and things like that, and that might explain. It's related to this idea what what cognitive processes are still uh, ongoing during sleep, and and what I I think I what is for me also a fascinating aspect is this uh, this idea of of having kind of a what you suggested maybe a little bit kind of an, a night watch system. So that's something that is taking care of us, that if something dangerous approaches us during sleep, that we wake up, for example. So how, how do we control this system? How do we influence this system uh, that basically keeps us sleeping or, or, keeps us, or gets us awake again? So that's is, that is my kind of broader view on sleep. And, and I think that, that could be a, a, a contribution from, from really basic cognitive psychology on, on, on sleep processes. And that is, that is a little bit my, my frame, how I would, what I would like to go on with.
0: So it sounds like an entire lifetime of research, really. But can me can just rephrase it to see that I understood? Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is I'm trying to understand really the interaction between our cognitive processes, our appraisal, how we are feeling, what we feel about the situation, what we feel about how we're going to sleep. And then the sleep that we actually get. So, probably some kind of a top-down kind of process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But 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 again, I think that that top-down does not necessarily mean that I can control the top, <laughs> right. uh, because because the because the top can can be quite uh, unco- a very fast unconscious evaluation process that I cannot really control. I mean, and that, and that is also what what they are doing with these emotions. I mean. Basically, they, they, they're, they're, they're putting kind of a, a top-down process in it, but it doesn't mean that you can, can kind of access the, the top-down process. It's, it's so quick that you evaluate that this tiger that is standing in front of you is dangerous. It's still a top-down process because you, you evaluate it as dangerous, but, but it's, it's not controllable at all. <laughs> or or not at least without practice.
0: <laughs> yes, and and in fact you may not even be aware.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: But pos- potentially if you became aware and you learned to control it, then you could influence these processes.
1: Exactly. And that would be the power, or I think is the power of these theories. And that's why also why they are so successful in therapy, because they give a conceptualization how emotions and stress occur. And they give basically key points where you can do something, where you can practice a uh, new evaluations or other reactions. So they give kind of uh, points where you can yeah, intervene, basically. And that's what I uh, generally, yeah, that's would be what I could con-
0: Yeah, but I, but you were saying, I think that this is where you could contribute. Yeah,
1: Yeah.
0: I think that's a really exciting set of ideas and very, very novel. Thank you so very much, Bjorn. It's really fascinating. It's beautiful work, all of it. And um, I'm sure everyone listening will, will enjoy it as much as I do.
1: Thank you so much, Penny.
0: You've been listening to the Sleep Science Podcast with me, Penny Lewis. My guest today was Professor Bjorn Rasch from the University of Fribourg, Switzerland. And our producer was Sophie Smith. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or liking us on Twitter. We're planning a Q&A session for the last episode of this series, so if you have questions about this episode, any other episode, or anything sleep-related, please send them to us on Twitter at sleep Science and a Thanks for listening, and until next time, sleep well.